you take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, we'll be beginning by looking at just two verses in Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. We read some of these verses uh, this morning in our call to worship at the beginning of our service, and I'll read these two verses to you, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Before we pray, if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 944. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you're welcome to grab that Bible. There should be one in the rack on the pew in front of you or maybe under a chair. Uh, So make sure that you have that. That way we could all follow along in the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank You for this privilege we have to learn from Your Word. And we believe that when we read and hear Your Word proclaimed, we are hearing Your voice. These are no words of a man, but they are Your words which spoke from the very beginning, creating this universe, sustaining this world. Father, I pray that we would be attentive to Your Word. I pray that you would use your word to stir hearts that are slumbering in apathy. Use your word to awaken people who have been just lulled into a sense of security, to comfort those who are alarmed. Lord, do the work for which you have sent your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third message in a three-part series that we've called Anchored. I appreciate Pastor Kyle uh, choosing a song that will be the theme for this month having to do with this metaphor of an anchor. And the reason why we've chosen this as our theme for this month at the beginning of the year is because often in our lives we can feel ourselves slipping. When we face a crisis or a confusion or some sort of change in life, as is often the case in a new year, Sometimes we can lose our grip on the things that are really true. You may right now be facing a trial in which you are tempted to say, I wonder whether doing the right thing is really worth it anymore. I wonder whether the things that I read in the Bible are really true, really worth staking my life on. So we've asked three basic questions in this series. The first question that we've asked is, what is real? The second is, how can I know? And the third is, where can I find meaning in life? The answer to the first question, of course, what is real, is that there is a living God. You look around at the world today, many people operate as if there is no living God. We as believers understand that God is the one who created this world and who sustains this world and that we know that we can have a personal relationship with God. The thing we emphasized in that first message is that knowing God is not knowing simply that God exists, but it's having faith in who God claims to be in His Word. And that leads us to the next question, which is how can I know? 
How can we know this God? Who is this God? What is He like? There are many religions out in the world that claim different things about God. The Word of God is what we stake our lives on as revealing who God is. We go to God's Word for answers. There is a living God. He's revealed Himself in the Word. And the answer to the third question is what we're going to be dealing with this morning. There is a living God was the first truth that we focused on. Second, He has revealed Himself in the Bible. And the third question that we're going to ask is, where do I find meaning in life? Where do I find meaning in life? Now, the whole question, okay, where do you find meaning in life? I actually Googled that this past week to find out what people are saying about where to find meaning in life. And you're going to find this question bantered about in books and blogs and wherever people tend to have discussions. So I came across this a quotation from the magazine Psychology Today. They say, The secret to a meaningful life may be to remind ourselves every day to do the right thing, love fully, pursue fascinating experiences, and undertake important tasks, not because we are trying to increase our sense of meaning in life, but because these pursuits are good in themselves. Now, the reason why I read that quote is because it represents a lot of the opinions that I have seen out there and encountered in talking with other people that the meaning of life and discussions about what, where do you find meaning in life is completely void. There is no discussion in that question about the meaning of life of the purpose of life. So when people are discussing what is the meaning in life, where do I find meaning in life, there is little said about, well, let's back up and see what is life for? What's the very purpose of life? In fact, when people discuss this, they often ridicule the idea that there is any specific purpose for life. And I found this very well represented by one author who says this, chances are you're more, he's in his 30s, chances are you're more like me and have no clue what you want to do. It's a struggle almost every adult goes through. What do I want to do with my life? What am I passionate about? I often receive emails from people in their 40s and 50s who still have no clue what they want to do with themselves. And then here's, here's what he, where he brings up this point of ridiculing the concept of any purpose. He said, part of the problem is the concept of life purpose itself, the idea that we were born for some kind of higher purpose, and it's now our cosmic mission to find it. And then here's where he casts his ridicule upon that idea. That is the same kind of logic used to justify things like spirit crystals or that your lucky number is 34, but only on Tuesdays or new moons. You see what he's doing there. He's saying this whole idea that there is any purpose in life is absolutely ridiculous, and therefore, what does that mean for meaning in life? You have to create your own meaning in life is the implication. And that's the same solution that we saw when we looked at the whole question of where do I find truth. People said there is no such thing as absolute truth, so what you do, you create your own truth. You create your own meaning. And in reply to that, I would say that this whole approach that says, well, create your meaning. What is the purpose in life? Well, we don't know. Well, then create your own. This conflicts with almost the way we think about everything else. Now, suppose that you were to step out your car this morning on the way to church across the parking lot, and you look down and you see a shiny piece of metal lying there. And let's say that for some reason you have no idea what it is, but you pick it up and you examine it, and you notice that on one side it's smooth and straight, and the other side it's kind of bumpy and ridgy, and you're trying to figure out what is this thing for? 
but it's kind of shiny and, and metal, and you're kind of attracted. You pick it up, and you, you hang on to it. You're like, I want to figure out what this thing is for. So you discover that there are some different uses for it, some things that, that you can do with it. You start using it to open up boxes that come in the mail. You could put this thing and you can tear the tape and you can rip it across and open the box. But you find that it's not really sharp. It doesn't really seem to be meant to do that. Maybe you look at the ridges and you think, maybe this is like some sort of saw. And so you take it and you, you try to saw wood with it. But it, it's not really meant to do that either. And, and you, you discover that it's kind of wearing it down and, and, and ruining it when you use it for things that it wasn't meant to use. If you never, what I'm talking about is a key, if you never have seen a key before, you wouldn't understand why, why these particular ridges, why this side is smooth, why is there a groove going down this side unless you understand what a lock is. And then you realize that every seemingly random ridge on that key is answered to by a very precise lock. There is a purpose for it, and there is a meaning for that key, and that is to unlock the lock. You see, we do this with everything in life. We understand that anything that's been created, anything that we see has a purpose and therefore the meaning of that thing is found in the fulfillment of its purpose. This question is important to us because we look around the world, we look around us at the world and we see that people are just bustling around trying to understand what life is all about. There's that cry in our heart for meaning in life. But often we search for it without understanding the purpose of life. And what is the result? One failed experiment after another. Trying to discover what the purpose in my life is. Is the purpose, do I find meaning in my job? Do I find meaning in pleasure? Do I find meaning in, in uh, family? Do I find meaning in, in sports and recreation? What is the purpose of my life? We, we see people are seeking for that all, all around us. In fact, often what people are doing is simply trying to so insulate themselves with distraction and entertainment and recreation to silence that cry inside of them saying, what is the meaning of life? Let me ask you this on a personal level. Do you know the meaning of life? you hear here this morning and maybe you are just wondering what this is all about. You're holding this at a little bit of a distance, not sure whether you fully embrace what Christians believe and what we do, and you are not quite clear, well, what is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? And my goal this morning, my goal this morning is not for me to answer that question for you, but to reveal what the Bible says about the purpose of human life, because the Bible is what is our ultimate authority. And so here's how I'm going to structure this message. First, I want to take some time to explain what Scripture teaches about the purpose of human life. And to do that, we're going to have to take a broad sweep of Scripture. I'm going to ask that you really give your attention and hang on here, okay? It might be a little demanding, but, but hang with me, okay? For the first part of our message, I want to give you an understanding of what the Bible teaches about the purpose of life. And in the second part of the message, what I want to do is explain what this looks like for us. Okay? So, what is God's purpose for humans, and then what does this mean for us now? So, the first question is, what is God's purpose for humans? And to answer that question, we need to go where? Where do we need to go in the Bible to see all the way back at the beginning what God's purpose for humans is? Go back to the book of Genesis, okay? So, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, 
you're probably familiar with catechisms that answer the that ask the question, "What is the chief end of man?" This famous Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism that that begins, "What is the chief end of man?" And for those of you who may be familiar with that catechism, it states in words that are absolutely true and right that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that we'd all understand that the Bible teaches that the purpose for everything is the glory of God. That's why we were created. But the question I want to investigate is, what does the Bible teach about this? How does the Bible unfold the purpose of human life? And to discover this, we need to look at the creation of human beings. And we find that in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. So look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Very interesting here. God is speaking to Himself, and in God speaking to Himself, we get a glimpse into the mind of God and His purposes for creating human beings. Then God said, Genesis 1:26, "...let us make man in our image..." After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's the end of God's, as we call it, divine deliberation. And then here's what He did in verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them." This is the passage of Scripture in which we're introduced to this fundamental concept, the fact that human beings were created in the image of God. And this really defines who we are. We are created in the image of God. And people have debated for centuries what precisely this means. What we need to understand is what does this verse, what does this passage say about the meaning of of our having been created in the image of God. And to understand this a little more fully, you understand that God says, let's make man in our image after our likeness. These same words for image and likeness appear a couple chapters later. In, look at Genesis chapter 5. We're trying to understand what is the purpose of human life, and to understand that we go to Scripture and to go to, when we go to Scripture, we understand that humans are made in the image of God, and we want to know what that means. We find these words occur again in Genesis chapter 5. If you look at verse 3, it says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own, there's the word, likeness after his image. You see that the words likeness and image that are used to designate the way in which God created human beings are the same words that are used to describe how similar Adam's son was to him. So whatever image and likeness means, it bears the same resemblance of father to son. Father to son. There's some way in which human beings resemble God in the same way that a son resembles his father. And we see this also throughout Scripture. When God redeemed His people Israel, when He brought them out of the land of slavery, through the Red Sea, He said about them, Israel is my son. We see this about even the kings of Israel. They were the son of God in a very special way in Psalm chapter 2. We have God speaking to my, His son, the king of Israel. And then we see this all the way in the New Testament when God says to Jesus Christ, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, we back in the beginning, we see that this idea of image and likeness carries the connotation of sonship. 
Now, why would God describe human beings in the same way that He would describe the relationship between Father and Son? Here's the reason. God created human beings to delight in a relationship with Him as children would delight in the relationship with their father. And why did He do that? Look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There is a relationship with there resembling the relationship between father and son. For what purpose? What does that mean humans are able to do? Because we resemble God in certain ways, what does that enable us to do? Well, look at the verse there. And let them have what? Dominion. And so, here's what we're getting at. We're discovering the purpose of human beings, and we're realizing we were made to resemble God in certain ways so that we can carry out certain activities, a certain function. What is that function? Here it is. It's dominion. In fact, we are meant to rule for God, exercise dominion. That is precisely why God put Adam and Eve in the garden, as God tells Adam to dress it and to keep it. Here's what Adam was supposed to do. Here's what Eve was supposed to do. Here's what humans are supposed to do. We're supposed to, in a right relationship with God, delighting in a relationship with God, just like sons and daughters would, we are to rule the world for His glory. And I don't have time to develop this all throughout Scripture, but you see this from beginning to end. And so as concisely as I can, here is why God made human beings. He made us to find delight in a relationship with Him as we exercise dominion for His glory. God made humans to find delight in Him as they exercise dominion for His glory. Now, what went wrong, though? What went wrong? Did humans perfectly delight in a relationship with God? No, they didn't. Do humans fail to exercise the dominion that God intended them to exercise? No, they didn't. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve chose to step outside the relationship with God instead of delighting in their relationship with God. As sons and daughters would, they stepped outside of that relationship and instead of exercising dominion over the rest of creation, they actually let the rest of creation exercise dominion over them. That's exactly what happened when the serpent came to Adam and Eve and says, has God really said? They cast, he cast doubt on the goodness of God. He cast doubt on the trustworthiness of God's word. And instead of exercising dominion over the creation, what did Adam and Eve do? They let the creation exercise dominion over them. Why? Because they ceased to delight in a relationship with God. They ceased to fulfill the purpose for which God created them, which is this, to find delight in a relationship with God, to exercise dominion for the the glory of God. And you see this from beginning to end. Now, because human beings fail to do that, this creates the need for a human being who can do that perfectly. And you find that anticipated throughout the Old Testament, pointing to the coming of one who would say this, I, as Jesus said, I delight to do your will. 
Jesus Christ was the only human being who perfectly delighted to do the will of God, obeyed God in everything, and therefore was able to exercise dominion and was therefore able to exercise, glorify God perfectly. What the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ never sinned. Jesus Christ lived in a perfect relationship with His Father, and therefore Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. He is fully God and fully man. We see this all throughout Scripture, and that is why, in fact, in Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, please turn back there. You're probably in Genesis. Go back to Romans chapter 8. I hope that casts a little bit of light on this passage as you realize why it is so important that human beings resemble Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled God's purpose for human beings. And now we see that God's destiny for believers in Jesus Christ in verse 29, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is, the closer you and I look like Jesus Christ, the more and more we will be able to fulfill God's purpose for our lives and the more we will find meaning in our lives. You see the connection there? The more we look like Jesus, who is perfectly fulfilling the will of God, who is perfectly delighting in God, who is exercising perfect dominion for God, the more we look like Jesus, the more we will fulfill God's purpose for our lives, the more we will find meaning in our lives. And so in answer to the question, where do I find meaning in life, here it is, it's becoming, in light, it's becoming like Christ. We find meaning in life only in Christ-likeness. And that is why the answer to the question we posed at the beginning, where do I find meaning in life, it's only becoming like, in becoming like Christ because only in becoming like Christ can you delight in God and exercise dominion for God in that way, and in that way glorify God. Now let me just clear up some, maybe some misunderstandings here about where God is, is bringing all of history. You see, we read in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, that human beings, those redeemed human beings, will be in the presence of God. God is going to wipe their tears away. And, and the Bible says, He will be with them as their God, and they will be their people. God will dwell with them as He intended to do from the very beginning. And then we find this very interesting phrase, and they will reign forever and ever. That is, they will exercise dominion forever and ever. In other words, there are things that God intended human beings to do way back in the Garden of Eden that they never got to because of sin. In fact, we could, we could almost look at it this way, that human sin is this massive parenthesis in, in God's plan to glorify Himself. The, his plan of salvation was to bring us to a point where we can glorify Him perfectly as we couldn't do under sin. So, so really, heaven is not this static place of strumming on a harp on a cloud doing basically nothing. Heaven is the place where we're actually going to get to do the things that God intended for us to do. And I hope that you please erase from your mind all the images of little chubby cherubs in these paintings strumming on harps as if that's what heaven is. If that's what heaven is, it sounds like a very boring place. 
That is not what God intends us for it to do. God has made us to exercise dominion for His glory. God intends for us to use our, our unique talents, our unique personalities to glorify Him in unique ways. And the only way we can do that is if we come, become more like Jesus Christ. That is God's purpose for human beings. That is why God created people. And, and you see this from the beginning to the end of Bi the Bible. And the, the more you think about it, the more you'll see it as you read the Scripture. And that's why the answer to the question, where do I find meaning in life, is this, becoming like Jesus, Christ-likeness. The question is, what does this mean for us now? Here's what that means. For those of you who are not trusting in Christ... It means that you must put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you will never find meaning in life. You'll never even start down the path toward, toward embracing and delighting in God unless you first recognize that you are a sinner in the sight of God and you need Jesus Christ to be your Savior. That's the very first step to take. And the rest of these things, I want to speak to those of you who are in Christ. Those of you who are right now believing in Christ. In, in the remaining time, I, I said I was going to divide it into two parts. Seeking to answer the question, what is God's purpose for humans? And secondly, what does that mean for us now? And so now I want to give you five uh, statements about your pursuit of Christ-likeness that are all scripturally based, but what I want to do is give them to you in a way that will be helpful and I think easy for you to understand. And just to be clear, what we're talking about is not how to have a relationship with God. Again, I'm speaking to you who have a relationship with God. The things I'm going to say, this is not advice to get into God's good favor, but it is exhortations to those who are in Christ how to walk in pursuit of Christ-likeness. So first of all, Pursuing Christ-likeness, seek it in your everyday life, not in the extremes. Seek it in everyday life, not the extremes. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Throughout the history of the church, there have always been some extremes to which people have pointed as ideal Christianity. In the early church, when there was a lot of persecution and people were actually put to death for their faith in Christ, these were the martyrs. If you really want to live for Jesus, you are going to become a martyr. And the martyrs were the ones who were looked to as the, the, the pinnacle, the, 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 the ideal, pristine model of Christianity. And as Christianity became legalized throughout the Roman Empire, then there wasn't that problem of martyrdom anymore. Well, who are we going to look to for our models of ideal Christianity? Well, now you have the monasteries and you have the monks. And so if you really want to live for Jesus, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to dabble in the mediocre areas of Christianity. But man, if you really want to do the right thing, you are going to get away into a monastery and you are going to live a life of suffering and pain as a monk because that's what real dedicated Christians do. Well, along comes the Protestant Reformation. Of course, the Protestant don denominations don't believe in, in monastic orders. What, what's going to be our 
extreme, ideal kind of Christian. Then comes along the missionary movement. And you have these people, especially before the era of communication and comfortable travel, that would go and leave their families and loved ones for the rest of their life virtually, and, and that was ideal Christianity. Now, there is obviously nothing wrong with being a martyr for Christ. There's obviously everything good about being a missionary and, and going and spreading the gospel, but the problem is the thinking that says, now, you can't really live for Christ unless you do that. The problem is in our thinking to relegate ideal Christian living to the extreme and unattainable fringes of life. And the idea can be, so you want to live for Jesus. Well, you could, live, you could settle for a mediocre existence, or if you really want to give Him everything, you're going to do something absolutely extreme. Let me ask you the question, is this the picture of the ideal Christian life that you encounter in the Bible? What do you see in the Bible when people repented of their sin and turned to God? Do you see a call to live an absolutely outside, the, like on the fringe existence? Let me, let me explain to you what this looks like when John the Baptist began preaching. In Luke chapter 3, I won't have you turn there, but in Luke chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, the Bible tells us John the Baptist goes out preaching, and people are feeling convicted over their sin, and they want to repent and turn to God. So the people ask John the Baptist, what shall we do? And John the Baptist, get the picture here, is this really gruff-looking man wearing camel skin. He, he eats locusts and wild honey. I mean, this is one crazy dude. And the people are saying, we're convicted of our sin. What are we going to do? He didn't say, come have some grasshoppers with me. Eat wild honey. Exchange your clothes for camel's hair. Here's what he did. He said, do you have two tunics? Give one of them to somebody that needs one. Tax collectors asked John the Baptist, what should we do? John said, don't collect any more tax than you're authorized to. That would have been the perfect opportunity for John the Baptist to tell them to quit being tax collectors. What did he tell them to do? He said, simply do your job in a godly way. Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist and they said, what should we do? That would have been the ideal opportunity for John to say, leave the army. What did John the Baptist tell them to do? Don't extort anything from anybody by threat or force. And be content with your wages. That's what John the Baptist told them to do. In other words, he was speaking to them in their calling in life and saying, you take, what God has, you take the place God has put you in and you live a radical life within that calling. That's not to say that God can't call someone into the mission field. That's not to say that God doesn't call people to be pastors, but it means that that is not the ideal spiritual life. That is not ideal Christ-likeness. We see the same thing in the epistles when Paul speaks to husbands and wives and children and servants and masters, and he gives them specific instruction right where they are. And here's the dangerous thinking that we want to counter. We might think, living for God, that's something I really can't do. I think the devil 
what delight in any Christian who, do, who swallows the lie that says we must leave real Christian living to the experts. But notice this. As you pursue Christ-likeness right where you are in everyday life, you will quickly find that that is radical, that is extreme, that is dramatic, that is absolutely amazing. If you pursue Christ-likeness with, with everything you are, right where God has put you, it's not mundane. It's not ordinary. It is radical. It is extreme. I mean, husbands and wives who are married for years and their passion for each other hasn't waned, that's radical. Single young people who refuse to give in to the, the pressures of, of sexual uh, release there in, in their, before marriage, that is radical. Men who refuse to defile their minds and hearts with pornography, that is radical. Parents who are patient with their children and seeking to nurture them in, in godliness, though that is absolutely traumatic. You see, it doesn't exist on the extreme fringes of life. It's where God has put you in everyday life that you can live in a Christ-like way. This is exactly what the ancient world found to be so amazing about Christianity. You find this, there was a letter written in the 100s A.D., like when the first couple generations after the time of Christ, and I'm going to read part of this letter to you because I want you to hear what people thought about the Christians. Listen to this. Christians, this letter says, are not, this is called the Epistle to Diognetus. It dates back to the second century. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, get this, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. Here's what he's saying. He's saying they live in normal cities and towns. They speak the language like everybody else speaks. They, have, they carry on certain other customs. But it's obvious that their citizenship is somewhere else. They live in their own countries, but as foreigners. They participate in everything as citizens. Uh, every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. That's referring to the ancient practice of abortion where they would, when they put an unwanted child uh, outside to let it die. And, and the Christians didn't do that. It was, was stunning to the rest of the world. They, they share their food, but not their wives. Absolutely countercultural. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect when they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. This resonates precisely with what the Scripture says about the Christian life, and that is, it is a life in which we can thrive and flourish exactly where the Lord has put us, radically transforming callings into things that glorify God in every respect. And here's the point. 
instead of thinking you can't be Christ-like because you don't occupy some position? You be the most Christ-like you you can possibly be. Instead of thinking that you can't be Christ-like because you don't occupy some position, you be the most Christ-like you you can possibly be. And as you do, you will find that it is anything but mundane, anything but ordinary, anything but vanilla. It is absolutely radical when Christians live like Christ. I might not get to all five, right? But that's okay, all right? (laughs) Um, I know that there's something going on this afternoon in terms of a football game, so I'm, I'm aware of that, don't worry. Here's a second thing for us to keep in mind, and I hope that that as you look at that, seek it in your everyday life, not in the extremes, that what you're seeing is that it resonates with Scripture, right? This is what the Bible says about the Christian life. Here's a second thing. Look for progress, not plateaus. Again, we're talking about our pursuit of Christ-likeness. We're not talking about how to have a right relationship with God. I'm speaking to those in Christ, right? This is not earning salvation. Salvation is a free gift from God, but, but having received that gift and becoming like Christ in order to fulfill the purpose of our life, in order to find meaning in life, here's what we could expect. Expect progress, not plateaus. Now, let me ask you a question. If you can graph the Christian life as a line, beginning with the time of your conversion all the way to the time of death, on the top being really godly in Christ-likeness and on the bottom not so much, what do you think the ideal graph would look like? I mean, some people think, here's what it's going to look like. Here's, here I am right now, conversion, whew, and then straight line to death. Is that how it is? Right. But, but sometimes you get the idea that people expect that there's going to be this, this massive change in everything so that my walk with the Lord isn't really a struggle anymore. There's another idea out there, that, that you're, you're struggling along after you get saved, you're struggling along, and then you have some experience, a second shazam, if you will that just catapults you up into this this feeling of of bliss and peace and not struggling with temptation and sin anymore. This is an easy mindset to get into because we don't want to struggle and we look for that solution. We look for that book that we can read that will rid us of the problem that we've been struggling with. We look for maybe a conference that we can attend and, and maybe a workshop speaker in which that, that just what I needed was said and then I don't struggle anymore. Or we look for some breakthrough emotional experience in which all this is behind me and I don't have to struggle in my walk with the Lord anymore. And the question I want to ask, is that the way the New Testament presents the Christian life? Are we supposed to look for some second breakthrough experience after which our walk with the Lord is just a cloud nine kind of thing? This is an easy mistake to get into. But the thing we need to understand is that the Christian life, the pursuit of Christ-likeness, is like a zigzag in an upward direction. Here's what I mean by that. We fail and we get back up. 
We fail and we get back up. We fail and we get back up. And we keep pursuing Christ-likeness over and over again. Let me explain to you why I believe the New Testament teaches that. First, the Bible assumes that Christians will struggle with sin. It does not assume that Christians are okay with it. It does not assume that, that, that it is somehow possible for us to sin and be content with our sinning. That is not the picture of the Christian life. But it does assume that Christians struggle with sin. John writes in his first epistle, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. On the other hand, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is the provision for even us as Christians to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I've sinned again. I need your forgiveness. I repent of my sin and I turn to you in faith. And I have to do that every day. And here's another reason why that's this plateau experience is not what the New Testament teaches about the Christian life. And, and it is this. When we look at the metaphors, that is the pictures of a Christian life, we don't read anything about plateaus. We read things about fights and races and battles. This is the picture of the Christian life, a struggle, a battle, a boxing match, a race. This, this is what the Christian life is. It is not a blissful experience. Yes, we have delight in our relationship with God, but as long as we're in, this, in these bodies, we're going to struggle with sin. But keep in mind that this battle is one that we are winning by the power of gra and grace of God. It's not a losing battle. It is a battle in which, because we have the Holy Spirit, we are guaranteed to win every time. Because if you are a true believer, you have the Spirit of God within you, convicting you of your sin, causing you to be repulsed by the things that God hates, and causing you to be attracted to the things that God loves. We have within us the Holy Spirit, if you're a true believer of Christ, and victory is guaranteed. But it is a battle. Scripture teaches that anyone who has been born of God cannot be unborn. Isn't that assuring? Anyone that has been born of God is a child of God, and any child of God has within himself or herself the Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. We have that assurance, and in this life, though, we groan, awaiting for the full adoption which will only happen when we see Him face to face. This is what John again writes in his first epistle in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, we are not now what we shall be, is what he says. But when we see Him, we will be like Him, that is, like Christ. Isn't that where we find meaning in life? We will be perfectly like, like Christ because we will see Him as He is. So, look for progress, not plateaus. I'll end with this one, the third, and it is this. Move forward by repentance and faith. So go back to that idea of a line in the Christian life. Like if your Christian life, your pursuit of Christ-likeness was a line, let's zoom in on that line. What are the irreducible components of a Christian's progress toward Christ-likeness? And it boils down to this, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. How do I know this? This is all throughout the Bible. You can just look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. I want you to turn there. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. 
Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. The New Testament often compares the Christian life to a walk. And here's one reason why this walk metaphor is so appropriate for the Christian life. is because walking is composed of these components, these steps, right? And in that respect, a toddler does nothing fundamentally different than an ultramarathoner, right? It's the same thing. It's putting one foot in front of another over and over and over again. That's what we have to do as Christians. What are those steps? It's repentance and faith. And what is that? It's simply seeing and delighting in Jesus more than you delight in your sin. That's the progress toward Christianity, is seeing and delighting in God and saying God is more valuable than anything else. I'm going to constantly be turning away from sin so I can, I can pursue God, and I'm going to take step by step toward Christ-likeness. That is the progress toward Christ-likeness. That is the progress that a Christian must make every single day, every single moment, repenting of sin. It's kind of like when you're driving. Have you ever noticed when you're driving, your steering wheel is always moving? What are you doing? You're always correcting the direction of the car. It's always kind of veering a little bit one way or the other for whatever reason in the road or the, the makeup of your, of your vehicle, but you're always repenting of going off this way and you're having faith in the road, going, moving forward on the road. It's like that in the Christian life. You're always turning from the wrong direction and, and finding more delight and more focus in, in Jesus. That is what you must be doing all the time. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we will find meaning in life only as we pursue Christ-likeness. What should we expect? We shouldn't expect it in the extreme fringes, unattainable areas of life, but right where God has put us right now. We shouldn't look for some plateau. We should look for progress. And what should that progress be? It's repentance and faith. And what does that mean then for us right now? It means that right now there is something to be repented of and something to be believed in. Some sin to turn away from and some aspect of God's character to embrace. That needs to happen today. That needs to happen tomorrow. That needs to happen next week, next month, all throughout 2019, a pattern of repentance and faith. And by the grace of God, as you do that over and over and over again, you will be more like Jesus Christ and you will continue to find ultimate meaning in life until you see Him face to face. And then, and this is why I love Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 so much, because then God's destiny for you will be fulfilled. In order that He, that is Jesus Christ, may be the firstborn among many brothers, picture this, Jesus Christ, infinitely removed because He is God, and yet in the midst of of a multitude of brothers and sisters that resemble Him in His delight in the Father, in His obedience to the Father, so we can finally do the things that God has meant us to do. And that's where we find meaning in life. It's in becoming like Christ. This is my prayer as your pastor for you, the people in my church, that you would become more like Jesus, 
This is the prayer that I have for myself, that I would become more like Christ, for my wife and my children, that they would become more like Christ. This is the prayer. Dads, pray for yourselves. Pray for your wives. Pray for your children. Grandparents, pray for yourself and your children and and grandchildren. Let's pray this for each other, that we would be encouraging each other in this rhythm of faith and repentance so all of us can be pursuing God's destiny for for our lives, which is to be like His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close with a word of prayer. Our Father, thank You for Your Word and the encouragement that it is to us. Thank You that You have given us in Your Word all that we need to grow in Christ-likeness. I pray that you would work in the heart of anyone in this room who has not trusted in you as their Savior. And Father, we long long to see those who are far from you brought near. And for those who have been brought near, to be brought even nearer, to become more like Christ. Work in our hearts. Do this change in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.